Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Freddie DeBoer. Freddie is an independent writer on Substack, in addition to having been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and many other places. His book, The Cult of Smart, was named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by New York Magazine. Freddie and I begin by discussing Karl Marx, the legacy of Marxism, and the so-called labor theory of value. Freddie sees a lot more value in Marxism than I do, so we disagree somewhat on that. We move on to discuss intelligence and the broken system of American higher education. A lot of that conversation is directly relevant to President Biden's recent student loan forgiveness executive order, although we recorded this right before that news broke. And finally, Freddie and I talk about wokeness and social justice ideology. So without further ado, Freddie DeBoer. All right, Freddie DeBoer. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So I have uh, been reading your Substack sporadically over the past year or so. People have sent me one article here and there. And preparing for this podcast, I, I put together the thread of all your all the different articles I've read. And But nevertheless, I don't know very much about your background and mm-hmm. how you came to be a Substack writer that has a an angle, a kind of unique angle that we'll get into. But before we get to your recent writing on Substack and your book, The Cult of Smart, I'm curious about your background. Where are you from? How did you get into writing and sort of how did you end up occupying this Substack space? Sure. So I intended just about zero of what has happened in my adult life. I would never have made the plan be the way that things went, but you know they've worked out pretty well, I guess. I am from Connecticut originally, uh, from Middletown, Connecticut, the home of Wesleyan University. I grew up on Wesleyan University's campus. Mm. My uh, whole extended family is a big bunch of lefties. My uh, paternal grandfather was actually blacklisted for his communist and anti-war beliefs when he was a professor of education in the University of Illinois system. There were these state McCarthyite bills called the Broyles bills, and he was specifically named target of those bills. His wife, my maternal grandmother, was a uh, civil rights and civil liberties um, activist back when it was considered normal to be both a civil rights and civil liberties uh, activist. Um, She won a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award from the Illinois ACLU. My mother's parents were old school FDR Democrats, et cetera. Um, And so I grew up in a very lefty household and uh, that was my milieu. And I consider everything that I believe now to be an extension of regular lefty politics. I'm frequently referred to as like a contrarian or similar, but I don't actually think that the things that I believe now are at all uh, out of keeping with the leftist tradition. Um, When I was at Wesleyan, these were the days in which what we now call identity politics were really exploding onto college campuses. So this was the time of the protests of free Nelson Mandela. This was the time of um, disinvestment from South Africa. This was when veganism was really exploding as a political force. And 
I knew that the activists, student activists that I saw around me were very passionate. I also knew that a lot of their engagement was shallow and counterproductive. Myself uh, became a student activist and uh, did an awful lot of anti-Iraq war activism when I was of college age. And that experience also was an experience of sort of looking around and knowing that people were right fundamentally on the merits, that the war was a sham, but the actual movement was a disaster that uh, it was riven with infighting. It was filled with purity tests. It was uh, constantly getting bogged down in interpersonal politics. And so I became a writer in the late 2000s, the late aughts, just to sort of express what felt to me like natural frustrations as an old school leftist with the identity direction that that the sort of left of center politics had taken. And since I've started, everything that was happening in the universities has metastasized and has spread throughout left institutions. And to me, that you know, if I had to sum it all up with one thing, it's just crucially that the left is fundamentally a collectivist movement, that the left politics fundamentally have to involve putting the mass ahead of the individual. And you can't actually do that when you are constantly dividing the world up into smaller and smaller niches of ink of identity. And that these identity explosion where there's more and more categories in which people can be placed is inevitable to feel sort of a market need and it's going to make uh, solidarity impossible. So 20 years ago during the 90s or 2000s, when you were getting dismayed with the uh, war protests and with other activist groups, would you have described yourself as a Marxist back then? Because I've, I've heard you described that way. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I am a Marxist, but I say that with the caveat that being a Marxist is to align yourself with a dead movement, right? Like I, there's a time in my life when I would have called myself a communist, but a communist, you need, there needs to be a movement to be such a thing as a communist, right? And there is none. Um, it is a it is a dead language that I'm trying to speak, right? I am um, venerating the dead when I continue to identify as a Marxist. I think that Marxism uh, is a descriptive philosophical program that accurately reflects a great deal of things about how the modern world works. Um, it has attached to it a set of policy prescriptions that most Marxist movements have un- been unable to implement for various reasons. But yeah, I I still fundamentally believe that the Marxist belief in the labor theory of value is correct. I believe that, that history is fundamentally driven by class conflict. And I, I believe that there can't be liberation within the system from wage slavery as that's an endemic to the system, as that is necessarily part of the system. Mm. Um, at the time, it was a big tent kind of thing. I mean, I think it's important to say that Younger people may not realize the degree to which the term socialist has been rehabilitated in the last, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the Bernie Sanders movement and to a lot of the movement around that, um, it's become a lot more socially acceptable to call yourself a socialist than it once was. When I first started writing in like 2008, socialism was a dead issue in American political life. You know, left of center was dominated by guys like John Chait or Ezra Klein or Matt Iglesias, who are sort of, you know, technocratic liberals who would refer to socialism sneeringly. So I mostly just identify as a socialist now because the Marxist label sort of adds more complication that is very rarely relevant to real day, real everyday concerns because of, well, Marxism is dead. So is Marxism dead all around the world or is it dead in America? I think it's dead, dead. I mean, I, there are some diehard old school Marxist political groups around the world, but even the ones that the sort of the ones that had a real physical presence in their various places have sort of retrenched. So uh, like the Tamil Tigers or Mm -hmm. Shining Path in South America, 
they, I mean, they're just, even the, the guerrilla paramilitary elements of them have um, largely fallen off. And you can look at a country like China, where there are both billionaires and homeless people, and where they're some of the most enthusiastic practitioners of a certain variety of, ca- of capitalism you can find anywhere. Um, I just don't know that it, it makes sense to, to sort of as- ascribe the label to them. I mean, I, I don't really mm. think that it means much of anything. So to the extent that Marxism continues to exist in many places, it is as a set, sort of a set of symbols that's just totally removed from um, what the core philosophical beliefs of Marxism were in the first place. I think in the one thing I've noticed is in the early 20th century, Marxism was so, especially before the Cold War really began, Marxism was almost synonymous with having an interest in ideas, which is to say like almost anyone like vaguely on the left who was interested in ideas and writing was some kind of a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a half of those Marxists and ended up not being Marxist in the second half of their career. But, you know, if you were a historian or an economist or, or just a social critic at all, that was almost synonymous with Marxism in, in those days. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, one of my perpetual frustrations is um, the only people who know less about Marxism than Marxism critics are some of its supporters. I uh, find that the default level of education about Marxism for the average like Twitter account with a hammer and sickle in Mm -hmm. the bio um, is close to zero. I mean, I think it's important to say Marxism is not to begin to pick one misconception, um, anti-enlightenment. So uh, Marxism was part of the enlightenment meant to be, you know, certainly debate with it was the culmination of the enlightenment, that it was the, the, Enlightenment sort of brought to its full flower in a way that would actually institute the sort of liberal and democratic goals of the Enlightenment. Marxism is not anti-liberal. So like a lot of people, you know, use the online, use the insult liberal to, for example, go after anyone who says there should be a rule bound order. So like if by rule bound order, I just mean I'm someone who thinks that my enemies should have the exact same right to speak that I do, right? And I am an old school civil libertarian in that sense. There's nothing in Marxism that cuts against that, in authentic Marxism. There have certainly been later flavors of Marxism like Leninism or Stalinism or Maoism that um, have cut against those things. But in actual Orthodox Marxism, the founders of Marxism, um, Marx and Engels, were passionate civil libertarians. So I say like a rule bound order, the idea that we all have equal rights under the law. That is not in any sense anti-Marxist. And yet there's people online who love to sort of say, oh, you're a liberal if you'll let a fascist speak, right? But Marxism is not anti-liberal. Marxism is a rule-bound order also. Mm -hmm. And so part of the difficulty and why I often steer conversations away from Marxism is Mm -hmm. just that um, we're working with so many folk definitions of what Marxism is, where there is sort of equal misunderstanding on both the sides of people who profess Marxism and those who decry it, that it just doesn't seem to me to be time well spent, especially given how sort of minimally influential Marxism is on day-to-day events. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much t- more time on it, but since we've talked about it this much, I've said this on the podcast before, my mother was a Marxist and she was getting a, a PhD at CUNY when I was like five years old. So she taught me the names Marx, Durkheim, and um, many other people. I knew those names when I was five years old. I, I didn't know she was trying to teach me Marxism. But, you know, as an adult, I guess I've developed two problems with, with Marxism that, as I understand it, and I'm curious to, to, to get your quick responses to them before we move on. And, and these are problems that are no doubt listeners to this podcast are going to be thinking as I hear you profess some version of Marxism. One is that, you know, if you open an econ textbook today, 
mainstream economics contains all, very little trace that Karl Marx, the economist, ever existed in terms of you know what page in the econ textbook at Econ 101 freshman year is going to have. You know, Marx discovered this thing that has turned out to be true 150 years later and, and empirically verified. You know, that's pretty much not there. And then, and again, I'm not an economist, but I think many, most economists would probably agree with that. And then second, it seems like wherever it's been tried, whenever the natural experiments have been done, such as, you know, the difference between Taiwan and, and China before China became more capitalist, uh, the difference between East and West Germany, there have been various other natural experiments and they, they seem rather conclusive in that when Marxism is tried, it tends to fail relative to similar cultures where where it's not tried. So what are your general responses to those two critiques? So the first thing I would bring up is the labor theory of value and say that this is not a Marxist event invention, the labor theory of value for those uh, who are not aware, who are listening. Capitalism depends upon an exchange of currency and commodities that are in some sense equivalent, right? Obviously, different markets will yield different prices for the same goods, but depending on conditions. But at some degree, to some degree, there has to be some sense that you have an equivalent exchange between a commodity and uh, its price, right? The labor theory of value says, okay, how can we figure out then how it is that people create new value? So if I have a factory, the factory costs X dollars to make, the workers cost X or Y dollars to employ, and the raw materials cost, uh, cost Z dollars to buy, we then have to produce something that makes a profit, right? We have to produce something that is uh, greater than X plus Y plus, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere, some value is being created. The labor theory of value is the belief that um, <laughs> this stems from, this is very often associated with Marxism, but it is not necessarily Marxist. So Adam Smith, who is someone who is an economist who is often quoted by free marketers, was someone who did a ton of work on the labor theory of value. Many or most economists will say that the labor theory of value doesn't hold up. Um, I'm uh, not smart enough economically to uh, say if they're correct or not. Marx himself said that the only his only contribution to economics really was what's called the decline, the, the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, which means that Marx said that, like, look, over time, eventually firms are going to eliminate all the efficiencies that they can find in their supply chain. That eventually, you're always going to find that you have eliminated everything you can eliminate and you've gotten down to producing the thing the most efficiently that you can. But labor value always seems to increase. Labor profits have to increase over time. And because of that, the uh, inevitably, the rate of, of uh, profit for large firms will decline. And he said that that's his big, his big, you know, defined by himself sort of contribution to mankind. Um, again, that's not something that most economists would agree with. Um, I think the, the broader thing that I would say is, first of all, it is a misconception, again, mostly a misconception that's engendered by people who claim to be Marxists. Marxism has nothing to do with equality. I tell, I have to tell those people all the time. The idea that equality is the goal of Marxism is not correct. So Marxism is about an end to exploitation. So again, we mentioned the labor theory of value. Um, if the labor theory of value is correct, it means that workers are producing value that they then don't capture, right? The, it is the bosses, the ownership of the person who owns the factory who, ca who captures the profit, and this is exploitation. Marxism wants to end that relationship. It does not promise equality. And in fact, we can imagine both um, Marx and Engels independently of each other said that true equality is impossible, that uh, the idea is uh, 
true human equality on all possible variables could never happen. Any difference between two people can be expressed as inequality. And therefore, as long as there's any human difference, and I certainly hope there's human difference, then there's going to be inequality. And so Jordan Peterson is an example of someone who is constantly going after Marxism because he thinks that the goal of, Mar of Marxism is to create equality. But equality is not going to be found in a sort of post-Marxist revolutionary world because individual people are still going to have their ability to uh, do different things that will have different values in the community. A Marxist revolution promises is only that they're not going to be exploited for their, their labor power. So. I would say this. I think that perhaps the overly clever place that I've arrived at over years is that when Marxists say that Marxism has never really been attempted, they're correct. When Marxism's critics say that that is a bullshit excuse, they're also correct. Meaning that it is simultaneously true that um, none of the major attempts to institute Marxist um, principles have met even the most basic sort of definition of what it would be to be Marxist. And so it seems analytically unsound to therefore condemn Marxism. But at the other hand, people are correct to say that, well, there's been a decent number of countries that have attempted some sort of Marxist revolution, and they have all tended to fail in the same predictable ways. And so that kind of undermines that critique. For me personally, a Marxist revolution is not in the offing. I think that there's a lot to learn in the Marxist history about how capitalism operates, but I don't do the sort of thing where I'll, you know, write a blog post where I apply a Marxist critique to mm. the idea of student loan forgiveness or whatever, because I just don't think that those critiques have much value under yeah. present conditions. Can I just briefly just give what I have always taken to be the problem with the labor theory of value, which is that Basically, it assumes a set, a fixed set of firms, businesses in the world producing widgets or, you know, software, whatever product it is. And the population demanding those products is not, their demands are not constantly changing, right? So in that scenario where the job of the economy was to just make a million widgets a year for the people, it would actually hold true that the only people adding value to the parts that make up a widget are the people in the factory making the widgets, whatever those are. But the way the economy actually works is that every day and every second, demand is changing. And there are, you know, people are constantly having to guess what the demand is going to be tomorrow, one hour from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, in order to provide the upfront cash that every business um, needs to start before it even starts turning a profit. And so the value added by the owners the venture capital uh, people, the investors, what used to be called the speculators probably in back in the day um, and today still, is to basically play this guessing game and allow people to build the widget factory for widgets that aren't going to be built and might not be needed at all. And without that, an economy doesn't work. Yeah, I, and I think another thing is like, what do you do with me, like a person like me in a traditional Marxist analysis, meaning am I a boss or am I a labor, right? I run my own shop. I derive my income primarily from my newsletter. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, am a ghostwriter and I uh, have a new book under contract with Simon & Schuster, etc. In each of those cases, you could make the claim that I am laboring for someone who owns the means of production. I mean, Substack owns the, the servers I'm, my stuff is hosted on. But it, in the long, in the bigger analysis, um, I mean, I am capturing 
the great majority of the value created by my newsletter, right? And it was impossible for Marx or Engels or anyone to be able to look forward to a world in which this distributed network that is the internet would create so many opportunities for people to be, in effect, independent contractors or sort of bosses and labor at the same time. So, and I, I know people, look, there's, there's some really bright Marxists uh, working today. So there's a guy named Robert Brenner, who he wrote a book called Economics of Global Turbulence, which was published in 2006. And it is to me, like the text that best predicted the financial crisis of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people still doing this work, but mostly I read in the same sense that I read about like, you know, the classics, mm-hmm. right? It's trying to find, draw lessons for modernity, but not necessarily assuming that they apply in day-to-day life now. Yeah. So another interesting aspect of your brand of Marxism, and this will get us onto other topics, is that I think many people have noticed a tendency for Marxists to deny the reality of, and maybe this is an inaccurate reading, you can clarify this, but to deny the reality of differences in ability, natural differences in ability between people. And But the conceit of your book that you published, uh, I think two years ago, right? The Cult of Smart is that the left, in order to actually meet its own criteria for justice, needs to acknowledge the reality that some people are born more talented, more intelligent. We have strengths and weaknesses naturally, cognitively, physically, and in every way, and that we have to recognize that. So uh, what was your inspiration for writing that book? And how did that gel with your intellectual past? So um, I was in grad school and I had joined a field that um, I really didn't believe in anymore. I thought that the field was fundamentally about teaching the teaching of writing. And it really wasn't. It had developed a whole bizarre and esoteric sort of theoretical view on what writing was, and it wasn't concerned with what happens in classrooms. And so I was um, kind of despondent because I was in a PhD program, My, you know, feeling like my work was not wanted. So I really started to do a lot of education policy research, a lot of education research methods, et cetera. I also was teaching all the time. And it was becoming just more and more clear that with every group of students I got, even, you know, I was teaching, I thought, at the University of Rhode Island and then Purdue University. And even though, you know, those are public universities, so they're a little less selective, we're still getting a screened out set of students. In other words, the selection process for those universities has screened out the lowest performing students. It was still clear, even without like a random sample, that some kids showed up to college on day one having, you know, a much stronger grasp of the basic underlying skills that they needed. And then a whole a lot of students not only were poorly prepared for, for college, they did not want to be there. Mm. Here's a conversation I mentioned in the book that really uh, sat with me for a long time, which is that I was talking to a kid who's a classic case of a kid who rarely came to class, was always behind on his work. You know, he didn't, he clearly just did not want to be there. And I talked to him and I, you know, I, I got around to saying like, look, man, like college is voluntary. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be here. There's mm-hmm. other things you can do. And he said, what am I going to do? Like join my dad in the fishing industry. Right. Mm-hmm. Which he said is like a ironically because, you know, Rhode Island's fishing industry has been contracting for forever. Mm-hmm. Right. It was, you know, to him, like he was saying that an indication of it being like a dying industry. Right. Not a growth industry. And so many of the students that I knew were in college purely because they felt they had no other choice. And so you have this skill mismatch between the kind of skills that college wants to inculcate in people 
in the skills that people come in with, but also you have a lack of want to because people feel they have no other choice. And I would contrast that to an earlier period of American life, which is you have the kind of fabled factory at the edge of town for decades in America. So, you know, sort of from, let's say, the end of World War One to uh, 1980-ish, say, when it starts to get dismantled. You know, Bruce Springsteen has sung a hundred songs about this, mm-hmm. right? There were industry, there's manufacturing that allowed somebody to get a job where there was the possibility of owning a home, owning a car, putting a couple kids through school. It didn't require a college degree. And that was another path. That was another way out. Certain places like Detroit were built on this promise, right? They were built on the existence of this kind of job. Often those jobs were unionized. And what happened was we closed the factories down. So over time, those jobs dramatically declined, again, mostly starting in the 80s and continuing on for a couple of decades after that. And they declined uncontroversially because of automation. So that's the uncontroversial reason is because we got better at making machines that could do the roles that humans once did. So, you know, people sometimes say we used to make things in this country. The United States is still a manufacturing powerhouse, but we employ a small fraction of the number of people we used to employ. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because automation was so effective that we were didn't need those jobs anymore. And then the more controversial thing is the role of offshoring. So pushing uh, jobs to Mexico, to China, to Bangladesh, et cetera. Obviously, I'm not in a position to adjudicate uh, how true that is, but that is certainly what, what some people say. And so you have this whole way of life, this vision of being able to go to the factory at the edge of town, get that job. And it might not be glamorous and it might not be an opportunity to ever be a superstar, but it provided that these jobs provided living wages for families. And this is how we created the American expectation of the house with the white picket fence and the car in the garage and the 2.5 kids. and whatnot. Right. And so one of the, th- the things that just became eminently clear to me was that, you know, there was always these doomsday statistics about college. I mean, globally, you know, throughout the system, we're still seeing only about half the people who who start graduate on time. There's all kinds of reports about students not learning anything while they're there. This is the crushing student that that people are graduating with. Um, it became clear to me that like the, the ultimate culprit of all of this stuff was that we were asking to, to fit a square pegs into round holes because there's all different kinds of ways to be useful in the economy and as a human being. But there's not a lot of ways to be particularly useful if you're all forcing everyone into that college pipeline. I mean, the system, if, if you look, listen to what the policymakers are saying, what's coming out of the think tanks and foundations, et cetera, their vision for success is always like, taking an underprivileged kid and we're going to train him up to be, you know, smart at math and send him to Stanford so he can mm-hmm. then be a Google engineer. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's just not a mass path. It's mm-hmm. just not a path that's actually ever going to be able to support everyone moving forward. Um, and I thought that the first step to fixing this is to stop treating smart as like the lodestone of human value. So mm-hmm. I tell a story in the book, I was at a, a cookout um, when I was in grad school and uh, there was a lot of grad students who were international students. And there was a guy I knew uh, from China and his wife and his two kids were there. And the wife was bragging about her older son and talking about how he's the tops in math and how he's in a robotic, robotics club and how he, you know, he always solves everything you know, really well academically. <laughs> and then her younger son ran by making like funny noises with his mouth. And she said, that one is maybe not so smart. <laughs> and I could see, and I kind of went like, ooh, I kind of like, 
do. You know, I got this like, I clenched up a little bit and I could see other people, other American people around me sort of clenching up too, because that's just not a thing you say about your kid. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about it later on that day, it's like, you know, if she had said that he wasn't a good athlete, I wouldn't have cared. Right. If she had said that he wasn't going to be a great visual artist, fine. If she said he didn't have an ear for music, fine. None of that would have phased me at all. Right. But it's with smart and with smart alone that we treat it as this totalizing system. Right. Like as the the sole criterion of human value. And it's that that I was trying to attack in my book. Yeah. So. That is something I have thought about a lot, and I've, I've, I'm not really sure I've gotten the chance to talk about it with someone who is in this realm. Because so you and I are both writers. We're both you know writers that are one degree of separation away from you know probably 50 different people that we both know just from like being plugged into this niche little world that we're in in the broader scheme of humanity. And but in this world, intelligence is it is central right in this particular profession if you're a wordsmith if you're an analyzer of social issues if you work at all with numbers and understanding statistics intelligence is is of great benefit but and so as a result i think people in our world sometimes take it for granted that intelligence is the most important thing. And just in general, you know, people who've been to college are likely to tell you to go to college. Is that because it's the right decision for you? Or is it because they and everyone they know went to college, right? And, you know, so my, I come from a slightly different perspective in that out of high school, my life was that I was a professional musician, and I did not initially go to a four-year college. I went to a music conservatory for six years, uh, for six months or so, ended up dropping out and then getting a liberal arts degree. Uh, But still, I never, even when I was at Columbia, I never, to this day, almost every one of my close friends is still a musician. So who didn't go to a traditional college, who either went to a conservatory some kind or didn't go to college at all. And that, because that happened to be my passion, I view it as pretty normal to be into something that is not academics. And I think there are plenty of people, college is not for them. Um, But we do have this kind of worship of college as the end goal of the first 18 years of life, right? It is the measure of whether you've succeeded as a teenager and as a a young adult. And I think that's that's not something that exists everywhere in the world. And it's something we should definitely reconsider. Yeah. And I would also say, and this is another major plank of the book that I think is important, is college, the college wage advantage depends a great deal on the scarcity of the college degree. If we were to succeed in getting everybody a degree, the college wage advantage would disappear. I mean, I'm not just making this up. I'm not just saying, reasoning this out from first principles. So there's a paper from the National uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, really fantastic uh, document. Wish I could remember who wrote it, but it looked at the college wage premium, I want to say from 1890 to 2005. Okay, so the entirety of the 20th century plus on on either side. So, you know, the college wage premium, when we say that it's just you know, the amount that the average college graduate is making relative to the average person who didn't go to college. Um, And they found that to a remarkable degree, and that's their words, remarkable degree, the college wage premium is simply a function of the number of jobs that require a college degree and the number of people with those degrees, Mm -hmm. the degree holders. In other words, 
when there are more jobs for people with college degrees, uh, then the value goes up. When there's more people with degrees to fill those jobs, the value goes down. Mm -hmm. Couldn't be simpler, right? Supply and demand. It's sort of the most basic and essential economic law. But if we think about that, right, then it makes the whole sort of everyone should go to college policy assumption kind of crazy, right? Because it means that we're simply pushing more and more and more people into the pipeline. That means that there's more and more and more people graduating from college who are then going to compete with each other on the labor market. Okay? So I, I write sometimes about the idea of a um, practical college major. And one of the points I make is that what is practical is actually not like intuitively easy to figure out. A good example is business. Um, so is a business degree a practical major? To many people, it sounds like the ultimate practical major. Hey, it's business. Right? You're going to go work at a business. This is a useful skill. Here's the issue, though. Business majors do all right when we look at the big picture numbers, but they only do all right. And a lot of people would assume they do better than all right. But a big part of the reason why they only do all right is we're graduating 350,000 of them a year, right? So if you are a business major coming up onto the job market, you are in a sea of other business majors who have the same degree, right? So you are necessarily going to have headwinds in terms of finding a job because there's such a supply of people who look just like you to an employer. There's a good illustration of this from a, a decade or so ago was in pharmacy, which is that uh, there was a, a sense that pharmacy was a good job and it is a good job with good pay and that it was a good port in a storm economically that uh, the pharmacists tended to be recession-proof positions and that it was an enviable job that sort of carries with it some white-collar respectability, et cetera. Well, what ended up happening was that in the span of a decade, and there's a great uh, new uh, Republic article about this, in the span of about a decade, um, literally over 100 new schools of pharmacy were opened in the United States. Just dozens and dozens of schools of pharmacy were opened in the United States. And what ended up happening to those graduates well, of course, the, the sort of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow got harder to attain because all those new schools and all those new graduates meant they had more people to compete against on the labor market. Now, I'm not saying somebody coming out onto the labor market as a young pharmacist was suddenly in bad shape compared to the national picture. I'm sure that they, they did fine overall. But the very act of trying to dramatically scale up the number of people getting that degree inherently made it more of a dicey prospect. So one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, you have to be careful about your intuitive sense about what's a good major to get. So like a, a classic story was there was a time when everyone was saying, become a petrochemical engineer, right? And then the oil market was submarine a while back and the price of crude went down a, tr a tremendous deal. And so all of a sudden it didn't seem like that good of a job anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously, number one, you want to make yourself nimble and you want to make yourself someone who is marketable in various different degrees. But what does what happens when you're telling everybody to go to college and everybody needs that credential and you find that, oops, now I'm on the market. Everybody already uh, in my age seems to already have a degree. Right. I have so much competition. Well, what do you do? Well, you get another degree. And that's how we see the insane explosion in master's degrees. Um, over the past decade or decade and a half, I encourage everyone listening to do a Google image search for master's degrees over time. And it's just this, if it was a stock, it would have made people super rich, right? It's mm -hmm. like, there's just been an explosion in it because people feel, okay, the college credential is no longer sufficient to make me stand out in the market. Now I need to go get another credential. And if we keep it, keep doing the same thing that we're doing, it's going to be another new credential and another new credential.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember reading Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. I assume you're aware of that book. I remember reading that while I was halfway through my degree at Columbia, like not doing my homework to read that book. And it had the effect of, it had that great combination of an argument that just seems obvious once you hear it, but you've never heard before. And the argument was basically, you know, college is talked about, the way college is sold to you is you are who you are at 18 and you need four years of this intense training to make you a more productive worker, right? Like at the end of the, at this four years, you're going to be different and better to an employer, just like you would be after, you know, four years of practicing a skill. You'd be, you'd be a much better chess player after four years. You'd be a much better basketball player. At the end of four years of college, you will be four years better to an employer. And that's why you will get the higher salary. You know, of course that when, when you actually think about it, that makes very little sense. Because, for example, if you go to college for three years and just don't finish your fourth year, an employer doesn't view you as three-fourths as, as good as someone who got the full degree. They think to themselves, why couldn't this person finish? Was something wrong with them, right? When your professor emails you five minutes before class saying, sorry, no class today, my kid got sick, nobody says, wait a minute you are cheating me out of something that's going to make me more money. Everyone celebrates and goes home, right? You don't feel, you should feel like you got stolen from when a class is too easy or when you don't, the teacher decides to cancel the pop quiz. But instead you feel like you have uh, gotten some of your time back. And the end result is basically the realization that college is a four-year stamping mechanism. It's, it's not, mostly it is not giving you new skills you didn't have that you're going to need in, in, on the job. Most learning on the job occurs on the job. Mostly it's proof that you're the kind of person, and you were on day one of college, that can go to class, show up at 9 a.m. for four years, do the long haul, turn things in on time. And that the knowledge that you're that kind of person is really the premium that employers are paying for. That's exactly right. I mean, look, I think it's important to say, again, forgive my memory, uh, I can't remember the name of the Supreme Court case, but there was a Supreme Court case that effectively outlawed certain kinds of intelligence testing as being prerequisites for getting That's right. yeah. uh, a job. And so one of the things that, that College for Everyone did is that it allowed them to sort of get tested sort of through the back door because, of course, there are entrance examinations to colleges. And a huge portion of what uh, employers find valuable about colleges is simply that it is a screening mechanism that they don't have to pay for, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you think about it, at the very least, I mean, there's some some schools that you can sleep your way through the entire time. Most colleges at least require that you to like be someone who can independently set their schedule, mm-hmm. who can show up on, on time fairly regularly for things, who can practice time management, who can delay gratification. That's what the, so many of the employers are selecting for. Mm-hmm. I promise if you go and get a nice job at Geico, something, right? You're probably not applying much, even if you have a business degree, right? You're probably not applying a lot of the business theory that you learned in college to your work at Geico. What you're doing is, is your resume and your college diploma say to them, this is someone who is not going to be absent the first week of their, their working. This is someone I can trust to be there when the meeting starts. This is someone who can be reliable, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, and this is harder to sort of express, is 
there's this credential creep where people say, hey, our jobs are serious jobs and we want them to be taken seriously. So even though I can't think of any particular reason why a college degree would be necessary to work this job, we're going to make it a BA be a requirement because I want people to know that my business is serious. We hire serious people and we're a grown up place for grownups. I think that a, a big part of college uh, and the requirements for for the workplace is just that people have a sort of status anxiety that they that they think to themselves, if I'm a boss and I'm hiring a bunch of people without college degrees, that says something about the sort of intellectual integrity of my enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so you just have this mushrooming effect where more and more people go in. Now, we should be, be clear again, like only about 40% of American adults have has a degree still because a lot of people are self-selecting out of the pool. Unfortunately, we have ever declining standards at the high school. So one thing that I would let your readers know is that, you know, we have seen a dramatic drop in high school dropouts over the past decade, several decades, particularly among people of color. The trouble is that there's not like a lot of underlying educational data that would indicate why that would be the case, mm-hmm. right? Like, in other words, you would think if a lot more people are graduating than used to, that we would see like in the SAT data or the state standardized test data, you would think that we would see improvements that would demonstrate that, you know, students actually know more and that therefore the this drop in uh, dropouts is, is justified. But unfortunately, there really isn't any underlying data. And so the, the, the general um, assumption is that there was tons of policy pressure on, from above to raise the graduation rate. And the people felt that pressure and, and they just shepherded a lot of people through the doors who actually didn't do the work necessary to graduate. Um, there's this thing called Campbell's Law, um, which is just essentially it says that um, the more pressure that gets applied to a, pretty, to a particular quantitative indicator, like high school graduation rate the more corrupted the meaning of that indicator becomes because people cheat the indicator. And unfortunately, that's what's happened with high school graduation. Yeah, I mean, I can personally attest that there was a lot of great inflation at Columbia University, more than I would have expected going into it. And it was far more difficult to fail a class than I would have predicted. And I'm not sure people who went to college 50 years ago don't tend to say those kinds of things. Russ Douthat wrote a book called Privilege, which is about his experience as a Harvard undergraduate. And he points out something that's, that's pretty fairly well known in the higher ed world, which is that, you know, for their stats to look the best, the Ivies, it's in their best interest for it to be very hard to get in, but also very hard to fail out, mm-hmm. right? That you want a really low acceptance rate. And because these schools, generally speaking, are not increasing their enrollment caps, they're not increasing the number of students who can attend, even though the number of high schoolers keeps uh, raising, their enrollment rates keep dropping. Um, you want to you want to look very exclusive when people come in, but you don't want a lot of people failing out. And so, yeah, it's notoriously easy to pass in a lot of programs and a lot of elite schools. Of course, there's schools where that's not true. I mean, Caltech, for example, is not an easy school to uh, to graduate from. But there's all kinds of just terrible incentives throughout the whole the whole system that I talk about about a lot in my uh, reading, uh, excuse me, in my writing. And you know, one of the things that I always ask people to remember when we think about colleges is none of this was sort of planned in the sense that all of our assumptions about the college being the backbone of our middle class economy and also about college being engines of social justice are things that were grafted onto college after the fact, right? From the beginning of the elite colleges up until the middle of last century, 
if you would t- talk to a Yale dean in 1930 about the idea of college, the purpose of college being to sort of be the backbone of the American labor economy, he would have thought you were nuts. Mm-hmm. If you had asked that Yale dean about the purpose of Yale being to you know create social justice, he would have looked at you like you were nuts because it was just understood that the purpose of elite education, the purpose of higher education, was to take people who were already elite and craft leaders of men out of them, right? It was, the idea was to perpetuate an elite that was capable of ruling because the people who were going to rule were the Kennedys and the Bushes, et cetera, et cetera, these dynastic, aristocratic American families. And so now we have these two major roles that people would probably think of as the purpose of of college, getting kids into jobs and creating social justice, when neither of those things were the original tent of higher education in America at all. And so it's, I mean, it's not really surprising that the institutions do such a bad job at those things Mm -hmm. when you consider that, like, they just sort of took up those causes when it became socially convenient for them to do so. Yeah. I mean, this, I love the way you put that. It's, so obvious when you go back in your mind to the mid 20th century, this was a time when they were still keeping Jews out of the Ivy League, you know, through clever mechanisms like essay requirements, because, you know, they, they, even if they couldn't ask you, are you Jewish? They can read between the lines of an essay of where you're from and what your life is like, because there were too many, there were too many Jewish kids that didn't come from the elite, you know, whose fathers were, you know, cab drivers or small scale merchants had just moved here that were testing into the Ivy Leagues and and breaking class ranks into the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite and had to be kept out because of that. And that didn't seem like at all contradictory at the time to the purpose of a college degree. In fact, it was instrumental to it. And the vestiges of that original purpose are now things like legacy admissions, you know, where you, it is actually, you know, the most classic example of an unearned privilege is to get into a Harvard, a Yale, a Columbia, simply because your mother or father is a professor or, or because your older sister or brother went there. It is uh, it, like it would be in the dictionary next to unearned privilege to, to describe to someone who had never heard the concept. And yet these are the hotbeds the incubators of an ideology which is monomaniacally obsessed with dismantling privilege. And so you see like the clearest example of an institution which is upholding privilege with out of one side of its mouth, but then, you know, university presidents signing off on the most radical kind of language suggesting that privilege has to be dismantled and saying things that frankly, the rest of society looks on like, what do these words even mean? And you have it all within the same institution. And it's the walking contradiction. I mean, and I would hear what I would probably talk about holistic emissions, which is, I think, a very interesting thing. You brought up the fact that, and it's, you know, it's, it's funny, you can, there's a, a wonderful book by Jerome Carabell called The Chosen, which is this amazing history of the emissions processes at elite colleges over the 20th century. And, you know, he, you know, has access to all this documentation and they weren't being particularly shy about the fact that they were in a conspiracy to exclude Jews, right? Like the Ivy League in particular, um, they were just, we would just say it to each other, right? You know, like, how are we going to keep Jews up? <laughs> 
So in the debates about college admissions that I often take part in, I'm um, more of a numbers guy. I am a, a dogged defender of the SAT. And I think that we should weigh things quantitatively to a, to a strong degree, although I, I think there's plenty of room to talk about, also talk about essays, et cetera. There is a, the diametrically opposed to that is the concept of holistic admissions. And holistic admissions is, you know, what people say, Forget about numbers. Let's look at soft factors and we'll look at sort of the character of the person and their personalities and, you know, those sort of things. The first thing to say is like, that's what the Ivy League did when they began their conspiracy to exclude Jews. So it's important to say that the specific mechanism, uh, one of the specific mechanisms through which Jewish students were excluded from elite universities was through a switch to a more holistic system because the Jewish students looked great on paper. They had great numbers. And so, well, what do you want to do if you want to get rid of Jewish students? You discount their numbers and you give more weight to their quote unquote character, right? And that's what a lot of people want to do now under the theory that it will let in more minority students, that we'll have more black and Hispanic graduates. And also now more male students, now that there's such women have opened up such a uh, dramatic edge in college. My thing is just like, if we, you know, the people who advocate holistic admissions tend to be the people who talk a lot about systemic racism and things like that. If you believe that systemic racism exists, why do you want to give more wiggle room in your process, right? Like if the whole point of holistic admissions is so that people have, the admissions officials have more opportunity to make choices based on intuition and based on fuzzy factors and, you know, not, and not math, wouldn't it then therefore be most likely that it would cut against the people who suffer from systemic racism, right? Look at like the things that colleges like in a, a student's application when it comes to the soft stuff. So they like things like going to Guatemala to build houses in the summer. Well, who has the wherewithal to do that? Poor students are rich ones. They like students who have taught themselves Farsi. Well, what students have the ability to pay for tutors and classes and Rosetta Stone, et cetera? Rich ones or poor ones. This is a thing that a lot of people don't know, but uh, many colleges, when it comes to sports, they'd rather you be pretty good at a rare sport than really good at a common one. So obviously excluding things like, you know, big time basketball and football programs. At a lot of schools, particularly like academically elite schools, they'll take a pretty good fencer over a great cross country runner because a, a fencer is more holistically important. What kind of students play the rarer sports? Is it the poor black ones or is it the rich white ones, right? To me, like we've already seen the holistic admissions experiment tried. It resulted in or was the mechanism to achieve anti-Semitic ends. And I see no reason to think that being holistic is going to prevent racism. I think it opens the door for more. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect of this is holistic assessments. And there, there has been, I don't know to what extent it's been implemented yet, but I, I know in San Francisco, there was rather San Diego, I think. Last year, there was a push for teachers to be able to assess their students instead of on a normal sort of average of all your grades on tests and quizzes and so forth to subjectively assess their students holistically, right? And I mean, this just brought out the exact same point in my mind, which is 
So on the one hand, the same people who, who are telling me we need to spend you know, $21, $23 million in New York City to re-educate public school teachers, right? To give them anti-bias trainings. This is money that was allocated over the course of four or five years in New York City by Richard Carranza. So we need to spend $23 million making New York City public school teachers less racist. These are the same kinds of people that would advocate for those same teachers to be able to sort of gut check themselves for what a student's grade should be. And at minimum, there is a tension between those two viewpoints, right? Like either you are trusting teachers to be totally race blind and significantly objective in their assessments of kids of different race, or you're simply accepting that there's going to be a lot of racist assessments here. And so there's a tension between those two viewpoints that is rarely, I think, recognized by folks who support those kinds of policies. You know, it, I think it is remarkable the degree to which the perception on rigor has changed in what we might call anti-racist circles, because, you know, now the sort of perception is, is that in Rigor in the traditionalist sense, the quantitative sense, the sense of being the you know, having the least wiggle room and being the most prescriptive about what the right and wrong answers are. Now that is sort of seen as being contrary to anti-racist attitudes. But, you know, when I was in my early 20s, one of the constant accusations of racism, of systemic racism that was made was that the lack of rigor with which students were being held to in largely minority schools that had terrible numbers, that the lack of rigor was itself racist, right? That in other words, that systemic racism lay in not holding black students and Hispanic students to the same standards because to do, because to fail to do so was not to prepare them for the real world. You know, I never know quite how seriously to take these policy documents that emerge that talk about things like not necessarily marking a student wrong. I think it's a math question wrong, right? That, you know, if a student puts two plus two equals five, then um, you should you know use that as a, a teachable opportunity. We don't mark him wrong or whatever. On the one hand, I don't want to feed into CRT panic. And I think that those things probably are are pretty farly, far removed, excuse me, from the actual pedagogical experience right now. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who really believe that stuff. And it is prominent in education discourse. You know, I still read a lot of education journals and in education as a academic field, you know, the sort of anti-racist Ibram Kendi kind of approach is sort of just assumed into the furniture. I mean, it's, it's just part of the, the background deal. And there are a lot of people who are sort of who sort of make stabs against the idea of that kind of rigor as being a tool of white supremacy or whatever, to which I would just say, like, look, the fact that two plus two equals four and not five is what makes your cell phone work and is the reason why the plane you're flying in doesn't fall out of the sky, right? And I think that there are a lot of places where there's low-hanging fruit in terms of reforms we can make to our system to make them friendlier to poor uh, children of color. But the idea that in general, we should judge people less harshly, it just really seems to be like making it easier for them on kids to make it harder on them as adults, mm -hmm. right? Because at some point, Sooner or later, you're going to have a stakeholder who needs you to be able to actually do the stuff that you need to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Right. I talked about this with Ian Rowe recently, who runs a network of charter schools in the South Bronx or did for many years. And one point it brought out in me is just my memory of my own experience as a kid. Public school was very, very easy for me through fifth grade. And then suddenly I went to a much more rigorous private school. And at first I struggled because the, the gap 
in rigor was just vast, right? It was like my, I, at public school, my, I would do my homework in 10 minutes, get every answer right, get a perfect score on every test, and then go play soccer and basketball and game and Pokemon like the rest of the night. The moment I got to somewhere with, which just had a totally different level, I had no idea how to work hard. Right. It was it was shocking and very unpleasant for a certain amount of time. And eventually through that pain and the requirement and the lack of forgiveness of imperfection, I got way better. And I don't think I ever would have realized actually how smart I could be and how much I could excel at academic subjects if the fire had not been lit under me to excel or fail this test. Because I think some people are extremely naturally hardworking. Like you find some people that they're just born into wealth and still they want to work 18 hours a day and not sleep. The vast majority of us are not like that. We work, we respond to incentives. We, we respond to carrots and sticks. And often we actually don't know how good we could get at a skill unless there is a penalty for failing, right? This is where the phrase tough love come from. And I think a lot of people can remember a key teacher they had in their past that looked at them and said, I know you can do much better and I'm not going to accept less from you. And then by the end of the year, you just realize that you're way better than you thought you could ever be and way better than you would have been had you had a more forgiving teacher. Yeah. For me as a leftist, and the reason I wrote the book is trying to wrestle with the question of what to do with the people who genuinely are not academically talented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was so the book was sort of dismissed out of hand by a lot of left-leaning people because they don't want to believe in the idea that some people are academically talented and some aren't, right? They don't want to believe in the idea of a talent spectrum. Mm -hmm. But to me, I just look at like, it's mostly a problem with men. There's plenty of women who have this problem too, but we have this whole sort of cohort of men who, you know, in the British system, they, they call it the meets, which stands for not in education, employment, or training, who don't want to go to college. If they do go, they go for a few semesters and fail out, who, uh, have no marketable skills. There's a sort of backdoor welfare program in America, which is the disability system. So a lot of these guys will get bogus diagnoses of like whiplash, right? Like soft tissue back injuries that are very difficult to tell if they're objectively real or not. And they'll sort of live off of that money, which is not a lot. And they live, you know, really um, itinerant and unhappy lives. A lot of them are suffering from opiate addiction, whatever. We just, we have this whole category of person. Where, look, some number of them would wind up in that circumstance no matter what, I imagine. But I do think that, you know, once upon a time, these guys would have been able to be valuable members of communities if they had a employment prospect, a way to be useful to society and to earn a, a wage doing that. You know, the thing that I always point out is just that, like, it's always contingent what is a valuable skill and what is not. Right. A lot of people who were really good at being uh, travel agents suddenly found that the Internet had just taken the job out from underneath them. They didn't get worse at the job of being a, a travel agent. It's just that the Internet came and made all their skills redundant. Right. Um, once upon a time, being a big, strong, burly guy who could lift the biggest rock was very economically advantaged. Right. Because you had a skill set that many people didn't. You could you were ugly and you could pick the biggest rock up, you know. Oh, now, if you are born with the same genetics as that guy was, you don't have a marketable skill and you might be one of these guys who's living on disability. And at the core of all of that, though, you know, there has to be a, an acknowledgement that not everybody is a budding computer scientist, right? 
you would expect from the way that a lot of people talk that STEM is like our fastest growing sector of our economy. It's not true at all. Fastest growing sector of the economy is the service sector. Okay? By some metrics, the fastest growing job, the single fastest growing job in the American economy. Home health aid, which is basically mm. just when someone is old and infirm and needs someone to open cabinets and help them up and down the stairs or help them when they use the bathroom, etc., that's the fastest growing job in America because we have a graying population. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, the boomers are going to be needing that um, if soon if they don't already. The average pay for those jobs is less than $10 an hour, right? And so I think one of the things I'm always trying to do is to sort of de-romanticize the workplace of today and of tomorrow to get people to understand that, like, it's wonderful when you can find people and push them into coding boot camps so they learn to code and they become, you know, successful computer science types. But we need broad-based employment opportunities where people who have perhaps minimal academic skills can still participate in the economy in a way that they can pay their rent. And right now that doesn't really exist. And that's sort of the, was the purpose of the book is to sort of say like, there's this hole here, but the policy conversation is so aspirational that everybody just wants to talk about everybody getting a job at Google. Mm -hmm. And the people on the left don't want to talk about academic talent because they find it eugenic or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the people on the right don't want to talk about talent because they want to maintain the idea that anyone who works hard can succeed. And it's all about your willingness to work. And so uh, (laughs) I found the book put me in a pretty lonely position. Yeah, but it's a it's a position I totally understand and respect and and I think agree with and I think a lot of people would. I've been I've talked to some people from Europe and places like Germany who say that there in certain countries at least there is a robust culture of you know, getting a degree in a craft or a trade that is non-academic, like being a plumber or a carpenter or or something like that, which is a skilled profession, but requires a kind of, I mean, that like there are a lot of people that are just great with their hands, but no good at writing an essay. That's a sort of intelligence. It's, it's, a, it's a competence that I don't have. It's like the person whose car breaks down and they can just fix everything and everything comes to them quickly in that domain. And there's a, you know, it's considered, you know, high status or like normalized to just be a guy and go to high school and then do that and have that career um, in a way that it's not in America. Germany specifically has a, a, a tracking system. Now, this is soft tracking. So tracking is not that, you know, in the sense of putting students on different tracks in terms of individual classes, like higher level, lower level math. But there's also tracking systems in terms of like where you think employment's going to go. In my high school, when in the 90s, there's a program called VOAG, Vocational Agriculture which, you know, was for people who were going to go into into farming or into like uh, body shops and, you know, doing car repair and stuff like that. I can definitely say that there was a stigma for the VOAG kids when I was in high school. In Germany, they have a two-tier tracking system where I think the kids get put on one either at like sort of 12 or 13 years old, somewhere around that age range. Um, now, this is soft tracking in the sense that the parent gets to choose. So um, they're not saying, oh, you need to go on this track and we'll never let you on the other one. But there is a more conventional academic track that might ultimately send you to a liberal arts college in the same way that an American goes to a liberal arts college. There's also a track that's more for people who are interested in the trades, interested in manufacturing, etc. There is, uh, from what I've heard, uh, not a great deal of stigma associated with that, that it's seen as a, a very noble and path and a lot of people take it. It is worth saying that, you know, Germany has the advantage of 
more powerful labor unions and a very mature manufacturing thing. So you can get off of that trade track in school and go into a job for BMW or something mm-hmm. and you can enjoy, you know, a, a livable income and healthcare and et cetera, et cetera, which is not necessarily something we can say in the United States. I mean, one of the things I'm always talking to people about this is just like you can't reform college only at the college end, right? Because college's problems are economic problems that stem both both before and after college. Mm-hmm. And in order to make these things work, we have to have a policy response that yes, looks at before kids are sent to college but also at a policy response that sort of addresses things from from the top from above. But again, like the rhetoric always rises up to meet the moment. So one of the things that I demonstrate in my book is that every president, at least since Reagan, has identified college as like the key to our economic future. But you think about it, right? They're starting to say that at precisely the time when the old factory system is being dismantled and that way of life I was talking about has died off, is dying off. And so in a sense, you know, the people call that the Fordist economy, right? After 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 Ford, Ford the, the company, which is that you know income inequality was low, but gr- growth was really high, and there was powerful trade unions, etc. It's just really hard to get policy people not to want to talk about the brightest students and the students who are going to take you know take that leap and become the next superstars, and to get them to really focus in on the median student, right? On the on the kid who's not exceptional. Because, of course, the point of policy has to be to care for for all of us, the median uh, among us. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, well, part of what we're going to talk about is what to call it. You have a great article on Substack called, Please Just Fucking Tell Me What Term I'm Allowed to Use for the Sweeping Social and Political Changes You Demand. Mm-hmm. So th- this reminds me of, I'm forgetting who wrote this years ago and where they wrote it, but I think the article was called The Thing. And the point of it was there is this thing that has happened not just in higher education, but in corporate America, in the media outside of Fox News, in the art world, where, you know, in 2010, you know, nobody is talking about probably most people have never heard the term white privilege, systemic racism. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of words on this score. Almost no one's heard of the concept that words are violence, the concept of a safe space, trigger warning, which are already, I think, somewhat out of use by this point. But then suddenly something happens around 2013, 14, and all of these domains of of, of American life are quite literally speaking a language that most typical Americans on the left and right have never heard before. And this is also a measurable trend. Like you can see on Google Trends mentions of all of these formerly arcane, strange phrases literally climb exponentially right around the same year. And yet, as you point out in this article, first of all, some people will deny that anything has gone on at all. Others will say, and often the same people later will say, well, no, something is happening and it's a very good thing. And others will take an in-between route. Yes, it's happening, but it's just it's pretty small beans compared to other issues. And, and as you point out, there's, there's this problem of what to call it. It's like any word you use can seem pejorative and can be denied by the very people that subscribe to all the beliefs. So talk a little bit about why you wrote this post. Yeah. I mean, 
in the most basic sense, I really do just want people to give me a term because I'm so sick to death of having to write paragraphs long hemming and hawing about, you know, what to regard this, uh, you know, what to call this phenomenon. I have always used the term social justice politics because it just seems simple and neutral. But if they came up with a term that they like, I'll use it. I have no interest in, you know, in deliberately insulting someone by not using the term that they want. But the problem was, is that like, you know, when I was a kid, politically correct was a a term that became popular and then sort of unspeakable. You can't say politically correct because that's insulting. Identity politics is a term that people find insulting. And woke is a term that people find insulting. And critical race theory is a term that people find find insulting. It's like, okay, but what is it, right? What what should I, I call it? Yeah, I find very tiresome people who act as though nothing has happened in the last decade to the political and social norms of the American elite. Ideas that gestated in elite uh, university humanities departments, women's studies departments, philosophy, English, sociology, etc., migrated from those spaces and in the matter of a decade or so, um, effectively colonized the great majority of America's sort of public intellectual space, right? They're dominant in academia. They are dominant in media that is not explicitly conservative media. It's dominant in the think tank and foundation space. It has found its way into many governmental departments and functions. Corporate entities love to at least borrow its ideas and phraseology for their own purposes, etc. Somebody someday should write a book about how Tumblr played a role in that, because Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting. I mean, I think you can make a strong case that the drift was from academia to Tumblr Mm -hmm. to Twitter to elite life. But anyway... No, I, I agree with that assessment, by the way, as I, I this is also something I've talked about on the podcast here, but but not with you, is that I was on when I was 15 or 16, which um, would have been like 2012, 2013. I was on Tumblr because girls in high school I liked were on Tumblr. Um, mm-hmm. And right. that's where I first encountered 10 or 15 different concepts that four years later would be the center of the culture wars. So I, I encountered them on Tumblr before I encountered them anywhere else. Right. And it's just like, look, when you have Bank of America handing out pens at pride marches, pride parades, I don't, if the claim is simply that that is, you know, a shallow thing that they do that they don't really believe in, okay, but we should still recognize that they're there doing it. When Merrill Lynch talks about intersectionality and overlapping oppressions, I have no doubt that it's some intern who's getting strong-armed into doing it for the marketing value. But so what? It still demonstrates that there is a set of ideas that were came out of, seemingly out of nowhere and just very easily colonized an immense amount of American intellectual life. To the extent that it, that things underlie this, I mean, I, I would say the first thing that always has to be identified is safety. That if wokeness, you know, whatever you want to call it, identity politics of 2022, social justice politics, safetyism, I think, is the, the foundation, which is that everyone's purpose at any moment should be to prevent danger to anyone else, with danger being defined extremely broadly and explicitly including danger in terms of your ideas and language. And that in any conflict, when one person claims that someone else's ideas or language threatens them in some way, then we must always defer to the person making that claim. I think that's the core, or at least a a big part of the core of what we're talking about. It is the privileging of the person who is saying, I am threatened by this, rather than some objective sense of what is or is not threatened. 
it's also a profoundly individualist sort of philosophy that is, as I said at the beginning, stands in tension with the collectivism that's usually been found on the left in the sense that traditional leftist organizing principles emphasize we're all the same. The social justice movement's messaging is all about how we are not the same, right? In other words, Eugene Debs and the socialists of the 19-teens and 1920s were saying, hey, workers of the world unite, we're all the same, come together so we can win. Now it's, I am not like you because I am Black, Hispanic, Asian, Indigenous, etc. I am not like you because I am gay, straight, poly, asexual, etc. I am not like you because I am trans, non-binary, etc. Now, as I've written a lot about, you have this mushrooming number of diagnoses that people are having for claimed disabilities. So I am not like you because of my PTSD, because of my OCD, because of my dissociative identity disorder, whatever. So you have uh, an obsession with safety. You also have an obsession with demarcating how you are unlike everybody else, which has certain obvious problems when it comes to organizing. And I think that you have essentially an obsession with symbols and the immaterial, the ephemeral, because the people who act this way, number one, tend to be people who are at least financially comfortable, right? In other words, the the people who adopt this vocabulary tend to be people who do not have immediate need in terms of like roof over their head and food to eat. So their political issues are going to be all about symbols because they just don't have real material problems. Mm. And it's also going to be symbolic because these tend to be people who are writers, academics, right? They tend to be in fields that are like communications, more linguistics. They're people whose lives are lived in symbol and in words. And so their political obsessions are symbolic and words. And so, you know, the the example that I've used many times and, and gotten in trouble with for many times is the number of black people getting Oscars at the Academy Awards, right? Where I want a diverse Academy Award slate as much as anyone else, but that is of concern to maybe a few dozen black people total, whereas 700 black men are murdered every year in Chicago. And yet one is an obsession on social media and the other is unspeakable on, on social media, right? So those are the things that I would say sort of are to me the big things, safetyism, the insistence on and fixation on difference and the obsession with the symbolic. Yeah. A lot to say about that. The you know, one immediate concern, an aspect of it that, that I don't talk about often, this obsession with language, this preoccupation with language, right? Like it's very important to people that you use the word Latinx to describe Hispanic people because your choice to say that word is seen as an indication of how much you value trans and gender non-binary Hispanic people, right? It's seen as a proxy for that. And it's very important for people, even though the polls will show 95%, something like that, 95% of Hispanic people uh, do not prefer that term. The way you show you're you're a good person and that you're a person who cares about people struggling with gender dysphoria and trans people in general is by using this admittedly ridiculous word. And I say I say it's ridiculous. I suppose it's subjective what word is ridiculous, but when when over ninety percent of the people you're referring to, you know, most of them have never heard of it, much less enjoy it, I think I'm within my grounds to say that it's viewed as ridiculous. But, and what's more, the attitude towards language is deeply alienating, I think. It's not how the average 
Democrat or Republican voter approaches life to care about language this much, right? What normal people care about is what you are trying to say. What are you trying to communicate? The fixation on language is, it's one of the biggest disconnects, I think, between the college educated and the non-college educated. You know, the fixation on what words you're using and did you know that they're not called gypsies anymore, they're called Roma, right? Like that whole species of conversation is something that most normal people simply do not spend like 0% of their waking hours caring about or concerned about. And it is central to the mental lives of a lot of us who go to college or, or you know, this is like, it's the stuff that friendships are made and broken over. It's, it's the stuff that, you know, alliances are, are built on. And so I think it is, it's a pragmatic consideration for Democrats who want to get elected to be closer to the attitude of the average voter than of the average coastal elite like myself. It's important to say the technological change has its hands all over this because one of the things the internet did was it took conversation from being an audio medium to being a written medium, right? In other words, the fixation on language that you're talking about can only really be prosecuted to the degree that it is when your words are there permanently in black and white, mm-hmm. right? If I definitely believe that social media has exacerbated all of these problems. And part of it is, is if I have a conversation with someone, you know, presumably they're not recording me, I can make myself clear to them. If I'm not making myself clear to them, their body language and their facial expressions, et cetera, will let me know that I need to reformulate. Mm-hmm. I'll express myself a little more clearly. They'll get the gist of what I'm saying and we'll, and we'll depart. They'll ha- know the message, but they'll never remember the exact wording. Mm-hmm. When the commons becomes Twitter, right? Um, when everything moves to a text-based space, everything is there indelible in black and white, and everyone can interpret it in the least sympathetic way that they possibly want to. And there's no escaping your past, mm-hmm. right? Everything is always there for good. Anything on the internet is there permanent. And so the medium came along at just the right time or just the wrong time when these politics were were starting to be waged, because you could look at something like the infamous Justine Sacco tweet mm-hmm. about her trip to, to Africa, which was intended to be a sort of like dark, isn't racism bad kind of a a tweet, but was instead chosen to be interpreted as a very racist tweet. You know, that that the sort of the medium becomes the message uh, and like the indelibility, the permanency of uh, text and the ability to misinterpret it without the person being able to weigh in. I think are are deeply uh, at play. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, that's something I've just noticed from non-political arguments, you know, I have with a friend over text. Like if if someone texts me something that hurts a little bit, I feel as if they're saying it over and over and over again, right? Like repeating it 20 times because I can read it 20 times if if it's, you know, like you can read a breakup text like 50 times if you want to drive yourself insane. But if you had had the conversation in person, you wouldn't necessarily remember the phrasing of it forever. It wouldn't carry the weight of that it seems to carry when you can look at it over and over again. And that's true of just text versus speech in general. And that's why you should all probably leave more voice memos with your friends. It's a, I think it's a great... Yeah, good. That's a... Good idea. It's a very good idea. I like when people do that with me. And that's a good note to end on. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. But before I let you go, can you just point people 
to your Substack. I can recommend it. It's you're prolific on it and you always have interesting things to say. So can you point people in that direction? Yeah, it's just freddydeboer.substack.com. That's D-E-B-O-E-R. That's right. All right. Thanks, Freddie. Thanks. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.